Okay, let's just say that it comes. This is a difficult pair. All of our children and youth uh, Sunday school classes and one adult class uh, use the same text in Sunday school that we uh, use in worship on Sunday mornings here. And more than one of those teachers has found a way to reach out to me in the last week and say, what is up with this parable? Do you have the answer? To which I respond, I was kind of hoping you did. And when you turn to biblical scholars, you find that you don't get much help. One says, on the face of it, the steward looks like a junk bond artist who not only saves his skin by defrauding his master, but wins praise for doing so. Another says, Jesus seems here to be holding up a criminal act as an example to be emulated. Luke Timothy Johnson at Emory University says, the problem we face is that although Luke consistently talks about possessions, he does not talk about possessions consistently. How's that for a bit of New Testament Zen on Sunday morning? Everyone seems to agree, even those with a lifetime of study under their belts, this is a difficult parable. So forgive me if I venture what may seem a foolish possibility, given all of this consensus. What if this parable is really quite simple? What if we make it difficult? Because we do not in the end really want to hear what it says to us, what it summons from us. What if in the end this parable, like all of Jesus' parables, is about the grace of living in the light of the kingdom of God as disciples of Jesus Christ? A grace that is not cheap just the same. The pathway to a life, the kind of life Jesus calls abundant. I don't know that I ever would have seen the parable in quite the same way had it not been for Schindler's List. You remember in this movie, many of you, from uh, 1993. A difficult movie to watch then and now. It detailed the life of Oscar Schindler, a Czech businessman and a member of the Nazi party in 1939 when he started his factory. A vain and greedy man who becomes an unlikely humanitarian when he feels compelled to turn his factory into a refuge for Jews. He is distasteful in every way. In 1939, he is watching across Poland and Czechoslovakia, the disis or what would become Czechoslovakia, the disestablishment of the Jews. And he sees in this disestablishment first, not an injustice, but a business opportunity, a chance to get cheap labor. The Nazis are busy closing Jewish businesses, forcing them into ghettos, 
stripping them of all of their possessions. And Schindler sees this and thinks to himself, here's an entire group of disaffected and unemployed workers desperate for a few bucks. I can hire them for a quarter of the pay of other workers. I will make a killing. Thus, he becomes a participant in the oppression of a whole group of people. But as the saying goes, it's nothing personal. It's just business. He's an opportunist in every way. And then, by chance, he sees the death camp at Auschwitz. And something shifts in him. We might call it grace. His eyes are open. It causes a crisis of conscience for him. And he responds by turning his shrewd business mind away from his own gratification and toward these others who heretofore to him were only pawns his get-rich scheme. He begins by bribing the Nazis and buying goods on the black market to sell to the Nazis in order to feed and clothe his workers. He ultimately moves his factory from Poland, where those workers would most certainly have met their deaths, to the Sudetenland, where they were over 1,100 of them ultimately saved because of his actions. By the time that the end of the war, Schindler had no money to his name, having spent all that he had in bribes and black market purchases for ever larger luxury items for the Nazis. He was a complicated figure not any less shrewd by the end of the war than at its beginning. But his cleverness had been redirected toward others rather than himself, toward life rather than death. He had effectively emptied himself to save others. And even though he was a member of the Nazi party and someone whose business was built on the back of oppressed Jews. In 1963, the nation of Israel named him as righteous among the nations, an honor given to those non-Jews who risked their lives to save Jews during the Holocaust. He remains to this day the only member of the Nazi party to ever receive this honor. And now look at the manager in this parable. He is the middleman in an enterprise in which the rich exploit the poor. The rich property owners are owned, owed money by the poor farmers who work their land. Landowners allow farmers to build homes and farm on their land for a cut of the profit. But of course, the cut of the profit is always just enough, and the fees that are owed are always just enough to forever keep these forerunners of what we would call sharecroppers 
dependent and forever indebted. Keeping track of this arrangement is carried out by stewards, by managers, as you heard me say to the children. They are hired by the master, the landowner, to collect the debts that are owed and manage the properties. The managers collected the debt that was owed, plus a commission, which they pretty much had the freedom to name for themselves. So the managers made their living by sticking it to the farmer a second time. They were getting paid a salary by the landowner, plus whatever commissions they could squeeze out. And this was all perfectly legal. But there's a crisis, at least for this manager. In the midst of this arrangement, somebody has ratted him out. He is not uh, dealing shrewdly enough with his owner's wealth. He's mismanaging, squandering the property. It's the same word that's used for the prodigal son in Luke's parable. He confronts his manager, and the manager, to his credit, doesn't dispute the charges. He knows he's about to be fired. The tension of the parable then revolves around this one question. What will the manager do in the moment of crisis? He is shrewd, we are told, which in the Greek can also mean discerning, or clever, or prudent. He sees this crisis clearly for what it is. And he comes up with a plan. You heard it. He goes to all the people that owe his employer money and reduces their debt. And how does he reduce their debt? It seems from all the evidence we can find in this parable, in this parable that he is in effect eliminating his own quite generous commission. And so now instead of owing a hundred jugs of olive oil, they only owe what they actually owe to the landowner, which is 50. He takes away his commission. Instead of 100 containers of wheat, another owes only 80. In one bold move, the manager has turned these farmers into his friends. People who will have favors to return once he is unemployed. And the landowner is quite impressed. He commends the manager for his cleverness. He's not angry at all. After all, he's not going to be losing any money. He recognizes smarts when he sees them. And then the parable is over. And Jesus makes the comment that I believe serves as the key to interpreting the entire passage. The children of this world, he says, are shrewder and the children of light make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth so that you may be welcomed into the eternal homes when it is gone. Placed in the context of Jesus' other teachings on wealth and Luke's gospel, it is clear what one preacher says about wealth. It begs to be served. We can use it to enrich ourselves 
and make people beholden to us, or we can use it to make friends and serve the eternal God. We can utilize our resources of money and time and energy for the kingdom, or we can put them all to work for ourselves. We can be discerning and clever and prudent and shrewd in serving God or serving money, but the whole point of the parable is that we cannot do both. Jesus is saying, in essence, church, be equally as clever as this manager. He, as a criminal, you, as a citizen of the kingdom of God. The thing that is praised about this shrewd manager is his ability to tell the time. When his master comes to him, he knows this is a crisis that demands a response. For him, the crisis is such that he's willing to lose his money in order to gain friends so that he might have a place to go when he's unemployed. The only thing to emulate about him or praise is his awareness and his willingness, once aware, to put everything on the line to save his own skin. Now Jesus, remembers, remember, is talking to his disciples now and not the crowds. And so these words are for those who follow him, the ones he calls children of light, them and us. Do you know what time it is? Do you realize the kingdom of God has drawn near? If so, we too are faced with our own crisis, what we might call the crisis of grace. After all, this is the crisis Jesus brings. The awareness that we are not our own. The awareness that all we have and are is a gift. The awareness that our lives, our next breath, our time, our wealth, our world, all of it down to the smallest molecule, all of it is a gift. so keen on self-preservation, we who can get so wrapped up in the illusion of being self-made, we who are slaves to our own calendars and to-do lists, we who crave control, we who are so easily able to believe that the only way we will make it is by the power of our own shrewdness. We are encountered with a crisis of awareness in Christ. The world is not upheld by us, by our power or our smarts or our resources. At the deepest level, the world is upheld by grace alone. And for me, Frederick Beatner's definition of grace captures the spirit of this parable perfectly. The grace of God means 
means something like, here is your life. Here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. I am with you. Nothing can ever separate us. It is for you I created the universe. I love you. There's only one catch. Like any other gift, the gift of grace can be yours only if you will reach out and take it. Maybe being able to reach out and take it is a gift too. To reach out and take it. This is the invitation of the parable. This is the crisis of grace. Because who knows what it will cost us? Who knows where it will lead us? Maybe to building houses with strangers who become friends. Maybe to the darkest corners of the earth or people's lives where the children of light can illuminate. Maybe even to the doorway of death where we proclaim life abundant and eternal. Who knows where this grace, this costly grace, will take us. But that's the invitation of the parable. To recognize what time is that our Lord stands in front of us calling us to account, extending the hand of grace and summoning us to follow. The kingdom has drawn near in Christ. We are His managers his stewards in the world. Let us take the risk of following. 